On the morning of October 7th, Vivian Silver was alone in her home in Kibbutz Berri. This Israeli community near the Gaza border was used to conflict. Homes there had safe rooms. Vivian was in hers. She texted her two sons. The kibbutz was under attack. There were gunshots and explosions and voices that she couldn't quite make out. Then her messages stopped. Here's her son, Jonathan Zeigen. So we, everybody freaked out. It turns out she was interviewed on the radio. Yeah, she gave an interview midst of everything. The host asks Vivian what's going on. She tells him that she's hearing via kibbutz communications that people are hurt. Vivian was giving a radio interview in the middle of this attack because she was a well-known peace activist in Israel. And so it wasn't uncommon for journalists to reach out to her. She was used to saying yes because she felt very strongly that, you know, the only way to, like, really get her perspective out to the Israeli public was to continue using the media as a sort of mouthpiece. And Hmm. she had a relationship with this particular radio host, Amir Ivgi. And so when he learned that the kibbutz was under attack, he called her. That's reporter Kevin Seif. Jonathan and his brother Chen shared this interview with Kevin and told him what happened that day. Because there were so many rocket attacks at this time, the interview continues to get cut off by these sort of like rocket alerts. They say the name of the the place it's being shot at and... Now something happened. They they talked about something significant and we didn't hear it because when it comes back, she says, it's it's time, it's time. And, he's, and he answers her, well... It seems like there's only one side that is um, not sane, not sane, insane. And it's, uh, it is, uh, I don't think it's uh, appropriate to talk about two sides now. He's pushing her as in he's disagreeing with her that there are two sides that could sit down. Is that That's right. right. Um, like, it's this bizarre exchange that the person who's being under attack is the person who's who's saying, no, there is a possibility of a uh, of a resolution to this. And he's like, look at yourself. You're currently, your your life is at risk because of this conflict. So in the end, she's, she told him, let's do this interview again if I survive. And then I can relate to your questions in a deep way. <laughs> yeah, that's very composed. And then he says, okay, yeah, sure, uh, stay safe. I mean, there's a really sort of spooky feeling to it, you know, because you know what happens next. The voice in the radio interview doesn't. Yonatan actually showed me at one point the text exchange that he had with her during that morning after the interview. 
At 10.17, he wrote to her and he said, are there still shots? And she responded, up until a minute ago, and now there's an eerie silence. And then something changed in Kibbutz Berry, and Vivian started hearing yelling outside, but she couldn't tell if it was in Hebrew or Arabic. And so at 10.41, she wrote, they're in the house now. I'm telling everyone how much I love you and how blessed I am to have you in my life. And then again, something changes, and it seems like they were in the house, but they've left, they've moved on. And then she says, I'm afraid to breathe. Yonatan responds, I'm with you. Vivian responds to that, I feel you. And then Yonatan says, are you safe now? He texts again, mom. And she doesn't respond. She never responds again. You know, eventually the Israeli military regains control over not just this kibbutz, but other kibbutzim that had been overrun by by Hamas fighters. They start to do sort of this accounting of who's been killed and who's missing. And Vivian is missing. Um, They can't find her body. And they later geolocate her phone in Gaza. Hmm. And so all signs point to the fact that she'd been kidnapped. It would be weeks before Vivian's family and the rest of the world learned the truth. She had not been kidnapped. She'd been killed in the attacks. But her sons didn't know that yet, and neither did Kevin. Over the next few weeks, Yonatan and Chen tried to figure out what had happened to their mother. And they tried to imagine what she would think of these brutal attacks and the beginnings of a war. And Kevin stayed in touch. I was interested in what their experience was like every day, waiting to see if their mother was going to be released. And I was also interested in in knowing how Vivian's sons, who mostly shared her perspective, might feel about the prospects for peace after their mom became a victim of the, the very conflict that she had, for so many years, tried to solve. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, December 22nd. Today, a story about the sons of one of Israel's most passionate advocates for peace. We follow them as they grapple with the question, is peace still worth fighting for? So you mentioned that Vivian Silver was a well-known peace activist in Israel. What was her work like, and what were her convictions? She was a part of this organization called Women Wage Peace. We're a one-issue movement, um, and that is to reach a political agreement that is bilaterally acceptable to both sides, the Palestinians and the Israelis, with the total involvement of women in every stage of negotiations. You know, for a while, she was bringing children from Gaza to Israeli hospitals if they needed medical treatment. Um. So that was that was part of it. And I think part of it was just reminding the Israeli government with protests, with speeches, with documents that she and her colleagues would put together that they're ignoring the prospect of coexistence. 
We must reach a political agreement. We must change the paradigm that we have been taught for seven decades now, where we've been told that only war will bring peace. We don't believe that anymore. It's been proven that it's, no tr- it's not true. And for Vivian's sons, I mean, what was it like for them growing up with a mom who um, was an activist and who had these beliefs? And, and how did they feel about it? Yeah, actually, I asked them about this one day when we were sitting in Yonatan's apartment. And what, what was she like as a mom? I mean, like, I'm curious. One thing was that they were just exposed to Vivian's life. Which was always uh, um, making collaborations with people and uh, meeting international, you know, diverse people um, and uh, spending a lot of time with uh, Palestinians and uh, Israeli Palestinians. Would she or, bring them to the house or you bring sure. you to yeah. them or yeah, both? Both. We also visited in Gaza once, which was is very rare for people in our age. Do you remember, like, Scary or no, it was beautiful. She used to very clearly tell them what she made of Gaza in the blockade, which was that they came to think of it as a sort of open air prison. She always talked about how we are, you know, barring the citizens from achieving any progress. A lot of these ideas flowed from her because of what she said, but also because of how she lived, and they were exposed to things I think a lot of Israelis probably aren't because it was important to her that they see them, that they live them. I remember one time I ranted to my uncle, I ranted about Israel, I was young, and and he said, uh, just leave, you know, come live in in Canada. This is your uncle in Canada. Yeah, and uh, I told him, I was a a teenager, I told him, you know, there are people who live to lead better lives, and there are people who stay and make their lives better. The place, and she was, she said, "Oh, you took my words out of it." That's what she was doing here. Right. <laughs> I feel like yeah, that's maybe one of those moments where you realize how much you've absorbed from your parents without right. even realizing it. Yeah. I think they mostly agreed with her politics. Where they diverged a little bit was what role that should play in one's life, which is not to say that they didn't believe that, you know, didn't believe in its importance, but it was that, you know, they had other priorities. They started having children, they had partners, they had other jobs that were not really related to Israeli politics. You know, that's a decision that a lot of Israelis on the left made. Vivian, I think in refusing to walk away from that cause uh, was the exception. And were her beliefs popular in Israel? They were not. They were were less and less popular over the decades. In fact, it was so unpopular that often when she would attend protests, there would be counter-protests there. The reason we came today is because this is the day to memorial IDF soldiers and group of far-left is Jews and Arabs are demonstrating outside Hebrew University. This is the middle of Jerusalem supporting terror, supporting terrorism. It's unthinkable. We have organized- there would be people there who not only disagreed with her politics, but disagreed so vehemently that they came there kind of to try to scare her away. Wow. And this started happening more and more in recent years when it didn't just feel fruitless. It almost felt dangerous sometimes to hold these opinions. 
And Vivian's sons, Yonatan and Chen, they didn't always go to the protest with their mom. They largely shared her politics, but they didn't feel compelled the way that she did to go into the streets and push for change. You know, I would uh, tell her, what? What keeps you going? It's dead. The left is dead. Israel is dead. It's a garbage country. You know, you won't, you, you, you can't influence anything. What makes you keep on uh, going? She told me once, uh, you know, Ireland, there was a week, Sunday, there was a terrible clash. Friday days, it signed the agreement. It could be tomorrow. Always said, it, it can happen tomorrow. So I have to, you know, if I, if I quit now, and then I won't be there for the tomorrows. Wow. So my understanding is that you met Vivian's sons. This was two weeks after the October 7th attacks. And so in that moment, what were they, what were their days like? What were they doing? What were, how were they trying to deal with this sense of uncertainty about what had actually happened to their mom? By the time I met them, yeah, it was a couple of weeks after the attacks. And they were really immersed in this sort of mission that they'd been handed, which was trying to get their mom released, you know? Uh, can I ask you the, the same question, just like how your day has been so far? Uh, I had a very bad day because uh, it's so much to carry. And um, a lot of people uh, reach out and uh, I, today I felt like I'm drowning in it. It meant talking to journalists. It meant going to protests in Israel with other families whose loved ones had been taken by Hamas. And, and it meant trying to pressure Israeli officials, the same Israeli officials that the, you know, Vivian and her sons had been trying to pressure on other causes for many years. And they would wait. A lot of it was just waiting. It was sitting in Yonatan's apartment in Tel Aviv, scrolling on their phones, scrolling on WhatsApp groups that the other hostage families were, were members of just waiting for any news at all. How was your day? Um, just, you know, a general feeling that we're kind of stuck in a loop and not, not even getting any new information. And, you know, it's beginning, like, to feel like... like everything is kind of... Futile. So every day that you know, sort of, there was this feeling of like, well, maybe today is the day that it's all going to be over, and then nothing. It was like this for a few weeks, and then on October 27th, Israel escalated its ground assault of Gaza. The next day, I went with Yonatan and Chen to a protest in downtown Tel Aviv with the families of the other hostages. Were you guys like? watching the TV last night, or did it feel, like, different to you than previous nights? I know it did for me, just given, like, the scale of the, it seemed to be a different scale of the operation. 
Yeah, I wasn't aware at first. Yeah, it was things uh, there, and I saw it, and it was just everything. It becomes a blur. They were each carrying a sign with Vivian's face on it. And the broad idea was just to apply pressure on the Israeli government to push harder for the hostages to be released. Because at this point, very few people had been released. And so we got there. It was really loud and kind of chaotic. Um, You know, there were some people playing music. There were other people who were chanting. Now. 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 Bring them home right now. And there was this question hovering over the protest of, like, is this a good thing? In general, I, I always like the status quo to change. Like, always. Okay. Even if it's changing for the worse? Sometimes. So, when it happens, something will change. Something will happen. And... Because I'm, I'm pretty sick of this phase. Right. It's like nothing else is working, so like, yeah. maybe this. I got that. No, I mean, even if she'll, you know, a gown invasion, I, I guess she'll die from it, right? A lot of these families worried that a ground invasion would lead to hostages being killed. And actually, that has happened. Recently, three hostages were accidentally shot by Israeli soldiers. But I think what, what Yonatan's saying here is that it's not that he agrees with the ground invasion, but he feels a sense of, like, stagnation, like nothing is happening. Hmm. Interesting. So it sounds like this is almost a, a moment where his, his beliefs that are so informed by his mom's convictions that they're starting to waver, that, like, yeah, maybe invading Gaza, maybe it'll do something. I think that it was really an emotional reaction and not an intellectual one. Mm -hmm. And I think once he thought about it a little more deeply, he very quickly arrived at a place where, like, absolutely not, under no circumstances, would he agree with the ground invasion or any invasion at all. I think the military solution, I think it's not effective. And it's not sustainable. Just more death. One of the things that I realized at this rally was that, like, this was a really fragmented group of people and that Yonatan and Hen in, in particular felt not really a sense of belonging. They didn't really feel like the larger group was speaking for them or that they shared much with them. They felt, they felt sort of alienated, actually, by the other people at the protest. What binds people live together is not politics. It's uh, pain and... And pain has a lot of faces. And so pretty quickly after we arrived, we, we started walking away. And we were walking kind of through these empty streets in downtown Tel Aviv. Like at this point, Tel Aviv was still, it felt a little bit like a ghost town, especially at night, because there were still a lot of rockets. And we walked by this military installation in the center of the city where people had plastered the posters of missing hostages, just like this whole wall of posters, face after face after face. She's dead. She's a very close friend of mine's mother. Walking by this wall of posters, Yonatan was pointing to people who he knew had been killed. 
So it's not written here that uh, it's not changed. She's dead. How do you know that? Like the They're from the kibbutz. And they've officially announced. Yeah. At one point, they were yeah. believed to have been hostages. And so the poster still said missing. Hmm. And he would stop himself and say, no, that guy's dead. No, they, they've been killed. He's dead. He's dead. She's dead. It's a, it's the, it's a family. All of, oh. all, this is a whole family. In Israel, we take death very seriously. We have the privilege to put a face on every death, right? But he was also reflecting on his mom's yeah. like lifelong fight for peace and what had become of it. We needed peace so many years ago. Yeah. And we failed to do it. We failed to, to achieve it. I think he felt conflicted about his role too. You know, like he knew that she had spent every ounce of energy fighting for peace. And he hadn't, you know. He had decided that that was not his life. His priorities had changed. When I was uh, younger, I was very active. And, uh, and uh, then I started, you know, I started university. And, um, I had kids. And I became bourgeois. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, it happens. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but she never did. I guess that's kind of one of the like special things about her. That, like, she like, had the family, had the life, but still was like the convictions never, never went away. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of special. Yeah. It, it struck me here that Yonatan was now reevaluating his activism in the light of the attack. And it wasn't clear whether it would make him more like his mom, whether he would double down on a cause, even when it felt fruitless, just because he believed in it, or would it make him despondent? We'll be right back. So, Kevin... At this point in the story, the weeks are passing by. Yonatan is still waiting for any news about his mother. And this is all happening in late October, early November, before the first ceasefire and the release of large numbers of hostages. So for them, I can imagine that this is all looking pretty bleak. Did Yonatan think that there was any action that he could take to help here or anything that he could do in this moment? I mean, this felt so big, and it just kept getting bigger. This huge geopolitical problem, the hostage negotiations were in the hands of the Israeli government that he didn't trust. All of this stuff's out of my hands. Like, what what can I control? And so one day, like, kind of thinking about that, he decided that he wanted to go back to the kibbutz. Can I ask you, you know, why you wanted to go back? I wanted to feel it. To see it with my eyes and to feel a part of it in a physical sense. 
to stand in the in the wreckage of my home. You know, the first days were very emotional, and then I like went into a, like a mission phase, right? And I think. want to to restore my emotional contact we're driving through what feels like you know a sort of like Israeli Pompeii or something it feels like this place that has been destroyed for years yeah. the houses have been scorched there are cars on the side of the road that are ridden with bullet holes this is the old chip. here these are trees every year um, there's a holiday uh, to Bishvat so every two Bishvat we would plant trees for the newborns so my son has a tree over here when we got to his mother's house it was just totally charred They broke the door, the front door, it's on the floor. And, you know, we walked inside. Yonatan walked inside first. You see the spider? Spiders don't care. They're indifferent to all. And so Yonatan walked around really quietly and was just picking up whatever he could that was whole. This is the stool my daughter used to go to the bathroom. Um, and there wasn't a lot, you know, it was like a sunglasses case. Um, and then he opened it and the glasses themselves were, were totally shattered, um, but the frames were still intact. What are you looking for mostly? I'm not sure. Um, traces of life. And I, I also think that he felt a little disappointed in himself at not being able to emote more when he was there. Because, as you heard, you know, that was his reason for going in the first place. And then mm. he was there, and I don't think he necessarily felt the kind of wave... Of emotion that he had wanted to feel. Feel it all like you were expecting it to? Like, Flat. Like you didn't you didn't feel the same like yeah. shock that you were expecting to? Yeah, like surge of emotion. At that point it was just difficult to feel much at all except for a kind of deep sadness. Blunt, a bit not blunt, uh, dull. Dull. So after that visit to Vivian's house, you had to leave the country. So what happened after that, and how did you stay in touch with Vivian's two sons? 
one night, for some reason, I couldn't really fall asleep, and I made the mistake of looking at my phone, and I had like a million text messages. Uh, and they all said the same thing. They all said that Vivian had been identified, that she was dead. Oh, wow. So I, I let some time pass, and I reached out to Yonatan. I don't know, I guess maybe you can tell me what you felt when you got that first phone call and then when you got the official news. So it was like, um, I don't know, being dropped. Hmm. But also, you know, weirdly, it's like um, like something that happens after you anticipate it, but uh, but it's in the back of of your mind, and you 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 live as if it's it won't come, but but it's always simmering, like it it will, and then it comes. What did they What did they say? Well, we had, um, I don't know, around a week before, I guess, or uh, I called the um, archaeology department and I told them uh, that I wanted them to go to the house to rule it out. What he meant here was that he wanted to rule out the possibility that her remains were somewhere in the house. And then... We understood that uh, something was was taken from the house by the archaeologists. A few days later, it was identified. Uh, they took bones. The bones, the bone fragments that had been used to identify her had only been found after we were there at the kibbutz. When we were there together, the bones were there. Really? It was they took the bones after we were there? Yeah. So there was this weird feeling that he had, and frankly, that I have, that like when we were there, we were standing in her remains. We just didn't know it. They'd matched these bone fragments with um, a CAT scan that Vivian had done, I think a couple of years ago, to identify her. They couldn't determine the cause of death because there's no like clear one of the bones with a bullet wound or the... Yeah. Oh, man, I, I can't imagine what it must have been like for them. I wonder, how did they process this, and and what did they do next after they found out about this? I think that um, they went into this other mission right away, which is planning the funeral. You know, I really, I used that word. You know, people asked me, okay, how are you now? I said... I moved from the retrieval mission to the burial mission. And so this other mission began, and Yonatan Khan wrote eulogies. They prepared for this, for this big funeral. Hundreds of people attended. It was live streamed. <laughs> He said, it wasn't just me that was orphaned. The community you helped was as well. Your friends were orphaned. This country you adopted at a young age was orphaned. And your movement was orphaned. The movement of peace. Why why was it important for you to talk about the politics? Like not everyone would choose to do that at a funeral. 
um because she wasn't you know she 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 was never only my mother i um i always felt that mm. i remember feeling that as a kid mm. that this this woman she's my mother but she's also a person and something for others and interestingly i mean it was really the first time since october 7th that the world saw photos of israeli jews and palestinians embracing which seems like it's such a small thing but that wasn't a thing that we were really seeing during those weeks and it was like a uh, a symbol it wasn't just uh, a funeral it was um people said to me it's the only event since the war that uh, arabs and jews and uh and palestinians uh, got together do you feel like all of this changed yonatan and and changed his the, the views that he that he held before october 7th yeah, I think that it didn't necessarily change his views, but it changed what he wanted to do with them. Hmm. Uh, well, I quit my job, and it's not uh, I, I didn't quit it, you know, to to run away. I quit because I want to to change my course, to stop accepting our reality here. And to to try to join the effort for change, but you know, I always, I always had my these thoughts. Yeah, I just I pushed them away because I uh, I didn't have the energy for it, and now you know it blew in my face. And I think I should um I shouldn't ignore it. I want, you know, everybody to share my my outlook that that things are not personal. I think he feels like, you know, if I can forgive the people mm. who killed my mother, then certainly there's a possibility for others, for us collectively to pursue peace because her murder as gruesome and terrible as it was doesn't feel personal to him if we want peace if we want justice if we uh want safety and and well-being then these are these are things that are shared between all of us so we need to to understand what needs to be done in order to achieve that and the first understanding of that is that superiority and violence won't bring us that ever never it it just it it can't happen kevin i'm curious what you make of this when 
The situation right now feels so hopeless. I mean, we're more than two months into this war. You have 20,000 people who are dead in Gaza. The humanitarian conditions on the ground are just getting worse. And it just feels like there's no end in sight. So to hear Yonatan talk about this, wanting peace, wanting justice, wanting safety, I don't know. What did you think about that? I mean, there's a way in which it's really inspiring, you know, that someone could go through this and stand by their politics and their values, maybe even feel those values more intensely. And there's a way that it made me feel really sad for him mm. because I think that he's so isolated in this fight, you know? Like, the number of people who are fighting for this cause are so few. And, and watching him take it on in a more, you know, all-consuming way, it just feels like he's, he's, like, getting ready to embark on a really hard life. Kevin, thank you so much for sharing this story. Thank you. Kevin Seif is an international investigative correspondent for The Post. Today's episode was produced by Bishop Sand and edited by Robin Amer. It was mixed by Sam Baer. Translation for this episode by Lior Soroka. The recording of Vivian Silver's final interview came from a special broadcast with Amir Ivki following the October 7th massacre and was provided by Galay Zahal IDF radio station. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our team includes Maggie Penman, Rena Flores, Ted Muldoon, Monica Campbell, Robin Amer, Eliza Dennis, Alana Gordon, Ariel Plotnik, Bishop Sand, Arjun Singh, Jordan Marie Smith, Renny Svernovsky, Sabi Robinson, Emma Talkoff, Sean Carter, and Renita Jablonski. My co-host is Elahe Azadi, and I'm Martine Powers. We're off on Monday for Christmas, and whether or not you celebrate, we hope you're able to rest and be with loved ones this time of year. We'll be back on Tuesday with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs>